Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Isaac. A couple of things I just want to make sure you all heard, which is no church in the room next Sunday. Um, that's how we get ourselves in trouble when we don't communicate that well. Now, Betsy, would you hand me this um, little prop right here? This is something that's pretty cool. Um, this is from the Browns, whose son Duncan went to West Point. This is a West Point um, cadet's sword. And so um, next Sunday, online, we're going to be talking about um, another Christmas story in a series about peace that has to do with a sword. So uh, I just want to encourage you to tune in next week and check out the end of our series. Betsy, I'll give that back to you. Also, um, that does mean in, in terms of financial um, stuff, we're not here next week. So if you are going to be giving to Mend About Year End, we're going to need you at that point to do it at mhcc.life. Last thing, our friends from Beyond the Walls, our nonprofit, are, are out in the foyer this morning. And it's an opportunity for, number one, for you to support Beyond the Walls at year end. And number two, one of the things that's taken a hit over these last two summers now of not being able to go out to um, Guatemala is our child sponsorship program. Many of you know it's been something that's changed the lives of not just the kids we sponsor, but our lives too, um, when we get involved in these kids' lives. What an opportunity it is for you this Christmas to help pick up some of the, you know, the, what's been left behind the, the kids because we haven't been able to be there. So if you're interested in child sponsorship, this is not like what you see on late night TV where you write a letter and hope to get something back. I'm sure those things are good. This is an opportunity to actually be part of the life of a child. You will go and, like I've been able to do, meet with that kid every year from the time the child was in kindergarten until she had her boyfriend Zoom me during the pandemic to ask if he could marry her. That's how close the relationship can be between you and your sponsor kid. So please go to the Beyond the Walls table on your way out. Now, this is the final sermon, the final Sunday before the big day. I know we're getting close to Christmas Day by the conversations I hear while I'm out and around in town. I was in ShopRite the other day in that ridiculously long self-checkout line at ShopRite. Have you seen this? The first time I didn't realize that was a line because it's down one of the aisles and I literally just walked up to the next open register and people started booing me. Um, and I was like, why am I being booed? I'm kind of used to that from you guys, but, but this was different. It was in a public setting and I realized I had just cut everybody in that line off. So this week I got in it and I was standing at the back of the line and look, I know we live in this crazy affluent town and, and this was a little over the top, even for our town. These three women ahead of me were kind of going back and forth about what it is they had bought their husband for Christmas. One was bragging, I bought my, my husband something that goes zero to 80 in only six seconds. And the one woman that was next to her said, well, what is that? And she said, a brand new Mercedes. And I'm sitting there going, this is ridiculous, right? And the other woman goes, well, it's funny because I brought my uh, husband something that goes from zero to 100 in only six seconds. What's that? The other woman said, well, a brand new Porsche. So now I kind of sick to my stomach. Uh, there's another woman that, that kind of entered the fray from behind me. She said, this is horrible. She goes, I bought my, my husband something too. And my, what I bought my husband goes from zero to 350 in, in a half a second. And the other two women said, well, what is that? And she said, a scale. <laughs> See, I'm used to it. <laughs> All right, anyway. We are in week uh, three of our Christmas series, Peace on Earth, Goodwill Towards Men, question mark. Here's what we know. Isaiah, Israel's great prophet, right? He foretold it. 
He said, for unto us a child is born, speaking of this Messiah to come. Unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and as Tara just prayed, Prince of Peace. And and he actually made a bold statement. He said, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Which is why it was no surprise that when the heavenly host showed up in Bethlehem on that mountainside with the shepherds that were keeping watch over their flock by night some 700 years later, those same those angels said to those shepherds, after telling them about the Savior that had come, born unto them, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, if you read that story in Luke, the, the, the angel's statement ends with an exclamation point. Ours ends in a question mark because after 2021, right, if we're honest, you have to question if the prophets were right or if the angels were wrong. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I'm having a hard time finding it almost anywhere. I mean, honestly, right? Our tolerance for one another seems to be at all-time lows. We fight over everything, you name it, politics, policies, masks, vaccines, religion, from social distancing in schools to seats on airplanes, there is no place left where we don't let words wound and fists fly. That's just where we find ourselves. And so that's why as a church, we have taken this on as directly as we can. You'll see that on Christmas Eve. We're not going to shy away from this. We are in the Christmas season that is supposed to declare a peace on earth, right? The greatness of his government and peace, there shall be no end. In our series, though, we've been trying to figure out how is it, why have we missed it, and how can we find it again? Now, just three quick things before we get into today's point. First, just about every time in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where you see the word peace, the English, it is an English translation of a Hebrew word, and that word is this word shalom. And we don't have a singular word in the English language to translate all that shalom meant. Peace is kind of one-dimensional in our language. Shalom was multi-dimensional. For most of us, when we think of peace, right, what we think about is lack of conflict in our lives, right? That we would find peace if we could stop war. That peace, in some sense, is the natural state of man. It's our, our state at rest. And if we could extract conflict from our lives and from the world, then everybody would be at peace. But the story of humanity as chronicled in the Bible is actually the complete opposite of that, right? We, the scriptures say, were born not into a world that was at rest, but born into a world in conflict. Conflict in the world, conflict with the world, conflict with others, and as we saw last week, even conflict within this inner turmoil that we all seem to experience. And again, at increasing, at increasing rates. That, in a very real way, war and conflict are default settings. See, we don't actually need something taken away or eliminated to find peace. We need something, or as we learned over these last few weeks, someone to bring peace. Now, in the Bible, when the writers of the Bible, and again, when they were writing it, they weren't writing the Bible, right? There's there's 40 different writers over a period of about 2,000 years Each of them, when they're writing about peace, they're actually writing, or in the case of Jesus' 
prophesying, specifically they're writing about this word that got translated peace, which is shalom. And shalom did not and does not mean the absence of conflict or war. What shalom meant was the return of everything on earth to the way it was once created to be. Good, very good, complete or whole. Again, the core idea of shalom is that life is complex. There are lots of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these things gets out of alignment or is missing, shalom in the world, shalom in relationships, shalom within begins to break down, right? Your life is no longer what it was supposed to be. It's no longer whole. It needs restoration. That's what shalom means when, when you use it as a verb, right? That's what Jesus was bringing. Shalom, he was bringing completeness or wholeness again. You literally, when the scriptures speak of peace, what they're speaking about is binding or joining something together which had been separated or divided. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he came to do. First with God, that was our week one discussion, right? We, in our natural state, while we don't feel it, the truth is we are enemies with God. Yet God extended to each of us at great personal cost to God an olive branch of peace in his son. Why? To reconcile us, to restore us to peace with God. This is foundational. There is no Christmas without this concept. There is no peace within and peace with others without first peace with God. Goodwill, goodwill towards men starts with this, and it's impossible without being reconciled to God. I summed it up this way for you in week one, right? Peace is not a how. The whole world, the way the world gives peace, as Jesus explained it, is circumstantial. Peace is not a how in the scriptures. Peace is a who, and it starts with you. Now, last week, we looked at the concept of inner peace, inner shalom, inner reconciliation, restoration, joining, wholeness, completeness, the calming of the storm that's raging increasingly in all of us, how Jesus came, how the truth of Christmas is we can find inner peace as we cast all of our cares upon Christ. Why? Because he actually cares for us. If you were here last week, we discovered that oftentimes the biggest enemy that we have in our own lives to our own peace is us. We're super good at wrecking shalom in our lives. In looking at our tendencies to do, the, do, to do just that, I gave you in last week's summation, not only is peace a who and it starts with you, but to find the peace, to find the inner peace that you're looking for, you have to be true to the who that now lives in you. You should be writing these all down refrigerator material here. So week one, peace with God. Week two, peace within. This Sunday before Christmas, we're going to look at the natural outflow. If I have peace with God and I have peace within, there should be a natural outflowing of these things. Peace with others. Or I'll summarize it for you this way. You can't be true to the who and you if you're not right with Bobby and Sue. By the way, boo rhymes with all of that too, which none of you figured out quickly enough. So you might want to write that down. Go ahead. I'll give you a minute. Is that good? But it's true. You can't be true to the who that lives in you if you're not right with Bobby and Sue. See, today we're going to talk about an offensive concept. I know you're not going to like this, but it's radically accepting, radically loving, radically restoring shalom with other people, 
rejoining what's been torn apart because this is what Jesus has done for us. Radical love, radical acceptance, radical peace. In fact, those are not my words. The Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the church in Rome, he said, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. And then he went on. Why? In order to bring praise to God. Guys, you know that this is the situation we're in right now, right? The world we are living in no longer accepts anybody who is not like us or who disagrees with us. You are simply cast aside. We live in a world full of condemnation engineering, right? Rejection, constant separation, distancing one from another, the breaking of relationships one from another over, well, over anything. You name it we can separate over it, right? Now this week I I came across a Christmas devotional that I think just nailed it. Uh, I mean, we are societally bad about this right now, but it's it's not unprecedented. Anybody, there's probably one person in this room that knows this word. Has anybody heard of the word shibboleth? That's the person I thought might know it. Shibboleth, it's a word in the English dictionary. I was unfamiliar with it, right? But it finds its origins in the Bible, this word shibboleth. You can look it up. What shibboleth means is it's a distinction. It's a a word or a practice that's used to divide or separate people. That's a shibboleth. Now, often in our days when we talk about shibboleths, they're connected to old ideas that have been proven wrong and discarded. It'd be like a, a sale at a furniture store, right? I mean, right. Everyone furniture store, if you not pass that as a sale sign in the window, right? The Yankees being a championship team. That idea is a shibboleth. Could we all agree? That's a third boo I think I heard out there in the, on, on page three. See, the word that's included in the English dictionary comes from the Bible. It actually comes from a, a rather dark story in the scriptures. In the book of Judges, the Old Testament book of Judges, there was a conflict that was brewing. Uh, There was a battle that was beginning to rage between Israel and not some other kingdom. Important to put that in your head. It was raging not between Israel and some competing kingdom, but within two tribes of Israel. The two tribes were meant to be together, but conflict had torn them asunder. The tribe of Gilead was fighting against the tribe of Ephraim. And why why were these two tribes of Israel, the sons and daughters of God, fighting? Well, according to chapter 12, the, the Gileadites struck down the Ephraimites because the Ephraimites had said, quote, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. That was it. Those were fighting words. And fought they did because of words and accusations. We all know in 2021, it doesn't take much more than words and accusations to begin to separate us out into our camps. We all got our camps, right? Tribalism, us versus them. People like me inside my group that think like me and act like me, and people that are outside of my group. This is as old as the human race. Now, here's here's what the scriptures teach. The Gileadites, right? The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan River leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, quote, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked them, well, are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. The word 
actually it was meaningless. Think about that. It was a meaningless word. It, it meant corn of ear. It was like grain in Hebrew. Say shibboleth, right? But there was a dialectical difference between the Ephraimites and the Gileadites. The Gileadites pronounced shibboleth with the SH sound. The Ephraimites didn't. So here's what Judges records. They said, all right, say shibboleth. Now, if he said shibboleth, because he, or excuse me, if he said sibboleth, because he couldn't pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed them at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Shibboleth, a meaningless word, hardly used in the Bible at all, was used to separate one group from the other group. All of this over words, all of this because of accusations, separations over pronunciations, and all of it, notice, all of it was between a people who were meant to be the people of God. They were meant to be a blessing to the world by showing the world what God looked like, how God acted, how God loved, and they let meaningless division divide and destroy their witness and nation. Let me repeat that one more time. They let meaningless division divide and destroy their witness and their nation. Friends, do you know any people of God who would let words or meaningless divisions destroy their witness and nation? You wouldn't know anybody like that, would you? See, here, here's the thing for the people of God. A people to whom God has reached out with an olive branch of his son to make peace. A people to whom God has provided so graciously, again through his son, a means to complete and utter inner peace so that they can extend to themselves an olive branch of peace. They were created, they were blessed to do exactly what Israel was to do, to be a blessing. Listen now, church. To be a blessing to the world by showing the world who God is by offering an olive branch of peace to others. We were to bring shalom to the world. That's our role. Paul explained it better than I can. Here's what he explained to the Corinthian church about our role in the world. He said, for Christ's love compels us. It, it makes us do it. It pushes us, right? Why? Because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, now, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Do you hear that, church? We regard no one from a worldly point of view. And all this is from God, who reconciled, here's the shalom concept, what was God doing through Jesus? What is the point of Christmas? God was reconciling, bringing shalom to our relationship with God, right? God reconciled us, brought us shalom to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of shalom, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Can I just repeat that? Not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed uh, to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are ministers of shalom. 
See, the story of Christmas does not end with peace with God. The story of Christmas does not end with the peace of God. The story of Christmas continues with us and through us, God calling us to be agents of his, agents of shalom, of, of, of restoration and reconciliation. Not agents, church, listen now, not agents of division. We are to literally be binding and joining together what sin has broken and separated. We are not to be agents of further separation. We are agents of this shalom, the shalom that we've experienced. This is why Jesus, in his single longest teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, this is why he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I saw one theologian said, by the way, that was the, sec the seventh of the Beatitudes. That number in scripture means completeness, right? Wholeness. This was the seventh Beatitude. This is, this is what we are to be. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. See, Jesus does not just intend to bring peace to you. Jesus intends to bring peace through you. Anybody see Tiger Woods play golf this weekend with his son, Charlie? I don't know if you've seen it. It's super cute, right? I mean, it's, it's like watching this little mini tiger out there. It really is quite amazing to watch. I mean, first of all, they, they dress exactly alike, which is cute now because he's 12. I'm not sure how that's going to age out, but that's another issue, right? But just watching, like, if you watch Charlie Wood swing his club, it's freaky. It's like watching Tiger swing his club. But it's not just that. It's the way that they both, they have pictures of them all the time, like they're leaning on the club the same way, right? Their mannerisms, like when the putts are going, they show their mannerisms and their facial expressions when the putts are rolling. They're the exact same. It's amazing. See, here's the deal though, right? Think about this. Charlie Woods is not trying to act like his dad in hopes that his dad might adopt him to be Charlie Woods. He's not acting like it so that his dad would make him his son. Charlie Woods is acting just like Tiger Woods because Charlie Woods is the son of Tiger Woods. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, is peace. He is shalom. We bring shalom because we are children of our Heavenly Father. You see that? Here's the deal, as you try to stay true to the who that lives in you, the spirit of your father, the spirit of the father in you will compel you to be like your father. It's not work, it actually just becomes natural if it's true. And if it's not, well actually, I'm gonna get to that in a minute because the apostle John describes it. Now, in thinking about this this week, I started thinking about what we do with peace as followers of Jesus, right? Jesus came that, that we might enjoy shalom and that we might extend shalom. As I looked at it, it seems to me that we can, we can be one of three things. We can be peace fakers, we can be peace breakers, or we can be what we're called to be, peacemakers. I want to quickly run through the first two and then tell you how to accomplish the third. First, peace fakers. Here's what I want you to know about peace fakers. We are not called to be key, peace keepers. Let me repeat that. We are not called to be peacekeepers. We're called to be peacemakers. There's a big 
difference. And Christians are really, really good at being peace fakers. Do you know any peace fakers? Peace fakers are, are the people out of goodwill, not out of bad will. But they, they squash conflict at any cost. There's no actual dealing with anything that could be difficult or painful or controversial or hard. I, I had a friend that grew up in a house of peace fakers. Good people, wonderful people, salt of the earth people, right? Now, I grew up in a completely different family. Uh, maybe too far on the other side of the spectrum. In my family, at the dinner table, if you had a problem with somebody else at the dinner table, you just put it out there and told them, I got a big problem with you. Now, we might not have been good at peacemaking, but we had no problem with peace faking. But in my friend's family, I remember the first time I went to dinner at their house, I was just used to all of us just kind of arguing across the table with each other. But in my friend's family, I remember the first time I went to dinner at their house, everything, that, every time somebody would bring up anything that could have any edge, any controversy around it at all, something was always said it was always the same thing, right? Anything that could get aroused out of somebody, the parents would immediately shut it down. No fighting. No fighting in this house. No fighting in this house. Now, did that solve anything? No. There was no peace made, right? See, no, no fighting is not synonymous with peacemaking. No fighting is synonymous with peacekeeping. And we're not called to be peacekeepers. We're called to be peacemakers. Now, some of you know this. Some of you live this. When you grow up in an environment like that, right, it gets really hard because you're not trained to do this. It gets really hard as an adult to learn how to resolve conflict. So it usually gets pushed deep down, internalized, never dealt with until usually it's too late. It explodes. We don't know, for example, right, we don't know how to deal with conflict with our spouses. So the marriages just stay kind of shallow. Never get down to that kind of soul level because to get there, we might have to work through some stuff. So let's just keep it here, right? We, we don't know how to have a tough conversation with our kids. And trust me, I, this is hard. I've got four. It's hard to have those conversations. I mean, I know. I know what it's like to go, I should I mean, I, have, I know. I should say something. But if I do, I know where this is going. So I think I'm just going to keep quiet. But we know where that leads. We know something's wrong. We know that the relationship is cooled or distanced. But because we're peacekeepers and not peacemakers, we let it go. Peacekeeping, this is super counterintuitive, but, but you know this. Peacekeeping does not keep relationships. Peacekeeping kills relationships. There's no restoration. There's no reconciliation. There's no mending. There's no rejoining. And so over time they die. My friend's family has very little contact with each other. This is why Jesus, in that same Sermon on the Mount, said, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Do you see there's a priority laid out here by Jesus? Before you bring your offering to God, First, go and be reconciled, restore shalom, bring peace to your relationships. You go in humility, you go with an olive branch, you go owning your part in the conflict, but first you go, you make it right. 
You go not to prove you're right, you go to make it right. First go and be reconciled because, listen, I didn't say this, Jesus did. You cannot be right with God unless you first get right with others. Do you see that? You're kidding yourself. In fact, John says that. I'll show you that in a minute. Now, second, peace breakers. Peace breakers. This has become so prevalent even within the community of, of saints, even within followers of Jesus. Here's why. We have an underlying thought process of I'm right, they're wrong, it's their fault. I'm right, they're wrong, it's their fault. Those people, they don't think like we do. They don't act like we do. They don't love like we do. They don't vote like we do. They don't feel the same way about, I mean, come on, you know what, you know what we're all fighting about, right? They don't feel the same way about vaccines or mandates or masks or school or curriculum. I mean, you know the issue and it's their fault, right? But here's the thing for you and I. When we get into peace-breaking mode, peace-breaking, you see how this is the default for us, right? We just default to this. Peace-breakers, the problem is usually not them, it's you. In my case, it's me. It's me. And peace-breakers reap what it is they sow. Now, that seems kind of aggressive for me to say. What do you mean it's me? Jesus had this brother, James, right? Um, grew up in the same house with them. And I'm imagining because they were real brothers in the, in the same house, they had some beef with each other. Imagine your brother telling you all the time, I'm the savior of the world, worship me, right? That would cause some consternation. I told my brother that all the time. He never, to this day, he won't buy it, right? So, and the scriptures tell us that there was some discord there, right? In the relationship between, it says at one point, Jesus', Jesus family thought Jesus was crazy. Of course they did. So, so James understands what it's like to have some discord. Well, here's what James said, right? James goes, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, I want you to tell me if you see any words in here which are kind of overwhelming. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Does anybody notice something here? Do you think that he just didn't have a word processor that was searching for a repetitive term? I think he's making a point very clear, right? 14 times in three verses. Do you know what's causing fights among us? Me. I am. Something in me. Something I want from someone else that I should have gotten from God. Sure, sometimes it's stuff, but oftentimes it's not stuff. It's deeper. Things like honor or value or respect. Most of the beef I have with other people is honestly more focused on my feelings and my emotions than it is my stuff. They're not acknowledging the way I think. So it makes me feel invalidated or or insecure or, or intimidated, so I have to respond. But John, you might argue, but what if I am right? I'm right about this. And you might be right. You might be right. But James talked about, right in this same conversation, he said, here's what happens. There's two kinds of wisdom, because you might be right. But here's, there's two kinds of wisdom. Here's one of them. He says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it. 
or deny the truth. Such quote-unquote wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Do you know what disorder is, don't you? Lack of shalom. Lack of shalom. Right? A lack of peace, which makes perfect sense because here's the second kind of wisdom. The second kind of wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. There's no self-motive in there. There's no self-aggrandizement, right? Peace-loving, shalom-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. That is the kind of the kind of wisdom. Even if you're right, that's the way you approach with truth, with that kind of wisdom. You may be right, but being right isn't the only issue issue for followers of Jesus. You may be right, but being right is not the preeminent issue for followers of Jesus. Be right, but be wise. Be lovers of shalom. Even if you're right, be considerate and submissive, impartial and sincere. You know why? Here's why. Because peacemakers who sow in peace, James said, reap a harvest of righteousness. That word righteousness in there, it means the approval of God. When it comes to shalom, listen now, I'm telling you, you are going to sow what you reap. If you sow discord and division, you will reap internally, inside, in your lives, in your homes, in your places of work. You will reap what you have sown, right? And part of that harvest will be not the approval of God, but the disapproval. What do we use most to reap, or excuse me, to sow seeds of discord? Our words, right? That's our number one tool, both online, both behind people's back, and even right to their faces, our words. Which is why Jesus says, be careful about what you say. Listen, guys, be careful what you say about people and policies and politicians Because Jesus said, I'm telling you, on the day of judgment, people are going to give an account for every careless word they spoke. Watch what you sow. So don't be a peace faker. Don't be a peace breaker. Be a peacemaker. If you remember last week, we discussed why we often don't have inner peace, right? It's because of this internal conflict. We wind up being double-minded, not being true to the who that lives in you, right? We know what we should do. We know what's right or good or pleasing to God, but we choose to go our own ways. And we looked at this verse from John, right? John, the disciple of Jesus, right? And and John said that we as Christians have a tendency to lie to ourselves about where we are with God. And then John actually says, if you want to know where you are with God, so you're not lying to yourself, he gives us a test. Here's what he said. He goes, if we claim to have fellowship with him, right? Peace, shalom with God. But we walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What is the mark of having fellowship with God, peace with God? The mark of it is peace with others. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. In fact, John John doubles down on it. Here's what he says. These are hard words. He goes, anybody, think think about what you're seeing on social media right now, okay? Anybody who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anybody who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But 
Anybody who hates a brother or a sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. John's going, look, if you want the true test of where you are with God, if you think you're right with Him, it's not how often you go to church. It's not how much money you give. It's not how few swear words you use, how often you read your Bible. If you really, 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 really want to know where you are with God, if you're walking with Him in the light, look at your relationships with other people. You, church, I, got, I, got to, I, I, I should have this put over the screen and just stay up there. You cannot love God and hate people. You cannot hate people and love God. It is an oxymoron. You cannot love me and hate my kids, even if I have prodigal ones. See that? So what do we do practically to be peacemakers? Well, Jesus outlined three really specific ways to do it. Here's what he said. He goes, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here it is again, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward would you get? Even tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your own people, what, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Here's three things peacemakers do. I'm going to close with this. Three things. First thing, peacemakers love their enemies. Second thing, peacemakers pray for their enemies. Third thing, peacemakers greet their enemies. If there's going to be peace on earth, it is going to start with peacemakers, and that's supposed to be you and me. How do we do that? First, we love. And, and this is just being practical. Love is not a feeling. The scriptures are not asking you to conjure up imaginary warm emotions towards people that you don't like. I want you to understand that the scripture is not asking you to do that. You can't do that. What loving someone who disagrees with you looks like, right? Loving somebody who represents everything you can't stand with. Do you want, do you, can't stand. Do you, you want to know what it looks like? Here's what it looks like. Think about the person that's driving you nuts right now with their crazy views. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. <laughs> That's a good one. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's even better. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. This is love. And I'm telling you, every one of these things is a choice to be made in the face of feelings which might feel very different. Now, they're all critical things, but I'm just going to encourage you. You can work your way through this list, but right now, in the world that we're living in right now, if you're going to be peacemakers, if you're going to be shalom makers, if we're going to restore what's been torn apart by sin in this world, can I just encourage you to do two things, just two, in regards to love this Christmas. First, with your words, your interactions, and friends, especially online, do not dishonor others. It's that simple. Just don't, like, don't do it. Don't dishonor others. 
And then the second part, love always trusts and always hopes. You know what that means to me, especially in the climate we find ourselves in right now? It means that love assumes good, right, and pure motives. Our biggest issue right now, our biggest issue in every battle that's raging, what gets the emotions going, what's fueled by the media and forces of division, which are everywhere right now, what everyone on every side of every argument is doing right now is assuming bad motive on the other person's part. It's always, it gets us fired up. I know why we're, they're doing this. Because of this, we assume bad motive. I give you, I'll give you what I hear. It comes from both sides. They want to control me. They want to indoctrinate my kids. They don't care about old people. All they care about is money. You see, we just impute motive, impute motive. There are really big issues out there that people of faith need to be engaged in, but when we fall prey to forces of division and we attribute to people on the other side of the issue false or bad motive, it fuels misunderstanding, it pours gasoline on hatred, it is not love. In every point of conflict, can I ask you to pull yourself out of it? You're being lied to. The person on the other side of the issue likely is not of bad motive, but instead put yourself in the other party's place and understand, let me just understand where they're coming from, what they're saying. The two last things Jesus said, first, pray. Pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. When Jesus said this, he was actually saying it to people who were being physically persecuted. Almost none of us have been physically persecuted, and almost none of us have prayed for somebody we disagree with. We have that in common. Pray for those who you're in conflict with. And by praying, Jesus did not mean, and this is what we do, okay? I know I do it. When I go to pray for somebody that I'm in conflict with, you know what I pray? That they come to see the truth. That they come to see things my way. Right? Lord, open their eyes. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, pray good over them. Pray blessing over them. Pray for peace and healing. Pray for them without praying for your agenda for them. Pray that they do well at work, that their kids succeed. Pray for their health and their welfare and their success. If you do this, if you do this for your enemies, it probably won't change them. But it will change you. It will change you. And you will over time become more like your Father in heaven who makes his son to rise on both the evil and the good. Do you see that? And lastly, there's this. Jesus says, greet your enemy. And that word there is not greet like you and I think of it, like greet your enemy. So it's kind of like, what's up? It's not it. In the Greek, the word there that's used there, is, is, it's the concept of welcome and honor and salute or pay respect to. It's a relational term. It means we welcome you into our lives our homes, our churches, our families, people who are not like us, people who disagree with us, people who metaphorically maybe say shibboleth a little bit differently than we do. We get to know them. We become their friends. Remember who Jesus was friends with? Jesus Christ, friend of sinners. We offer them the same olive branch that God through Christ offered us. And we stop with all of the my side, your side stuff. Friends, embrace a liberal. Hug a conservative. And in so doing, you will fulfill the law of God. This is real life stuff. 
If, if our church could do this, if we could lead a little revolution in this town, I'm telling you, things change. The kingdom of God grows. His governance will increase and never come to, the, to an end. I'll, I'll share a real-life story about it, and then I'm done. It comes from Tony Campolo. Here's what he wrote. He said, once a year in Northern Ireland, there was an event. And he said, from my point of view, it seemed to be very spiteful. Protestants who called themselves the Orangemen would march through the Catholic community. And led by a band, they would stick it to the Catholics, reminding them how they had been conquered by the army of a Protestant prince and made subject to Protestant overlords. The march always stirred up in us incredible anger among the Catholics of Port Portadown, where he was, the small city where one of the more offensive marches took place. It was on the eve of one of the town marches, I was asked to speak at a rally in Portadown Town Hall. And preceding me on the program was a Catholic bishop who told a most remarkable story. His mother came to Northern Ireland from Russia during World War II. And the bishop explained that because 40 million Russians had died in that war, almost every family in the environs of Moscow had been directly affected. And when the war was over, the Nazi prisoners of war were taken from their stockades and marched down the main street of Moscow to the train station to be shipped back to Germany. The bishop told how the people of Moscow wanted to get at these prisoners who had brought such devastation and death into their lives. Of course they would want to. That's natural. That's the lack of peace is quite natural. They wanted to tear the Nazis to pieces. The Russian soldiers could barely hold back the angry crowd along the route to the train. The first group of Nazis who came down the street was the officers. And they came down with their heads high, their uniforms carefully buttoned as they marched with typical Nazi arrogance. They were out to demonstrate to the angry mob that they had not been daunted by their imprisonment and they were still men of great dignity. As the Nazi officers marched towards the train, the people screamed and yelled obscenities at them, trying to break through the barriers to attack the prisoners. This seems a lot like what I watch on the news these days. Then, said the bishop, the crowd suddenly went silent, as there came behind the officers the enlisted men. Not having been as well treated as their superiors, they were on the verge of death by starvation. Their bodies were skin and bones. What had been their uniforms were now rags. They were doing their best to make their way towards the train station. The stronger ones were holding up the weaker as they walked. They were an incredibly wretched sight to behold. The crowd grew silent, and then somehow a, a woman broke through the line of Russian soldiers, went up to one of the prisoners, and gave him a piece of bread. One woman, one piece of bread. Another woman ran to their homes and got what little food they could and returning to give what they had to feed the starving enemy soldiers. Suddenly, those German soldiers were transformed in the eyes of the Russian onlookers that afternoon. No longer were they seen as arrogant, evil men, explained the bishop. Instead, my mother told me each of them had become, in the eyes of most of the onlookers, somebody else's little boy, hungry, perhaps dying, and very far away from home. And tomorrow, said the bishop to the Catholics assembled at the rally, as the orange men march through your neighborhood, taunting you and saying evil things against you, do your best to look at them and say to yourself, each of them is somebody else's little boy, hungry and dying and very far away from home. Figuratively speaking, who could argue with that? To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to view others with a Christ-like understanding and empathy. Church, 
do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance? Do you remember that when Jesus was on the cross, as he cried out to his Father in heaven, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was in that kindness that one of those same Roman soldiers that was crucifying him bent a knee to Christ and found life. Peacemakers are still bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Peacemakers are still bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Peacemakers are still bringing the kingdom of God to earth. So this week, this Christmas week, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's stand and close this all.